0: I'm Fred McMurray, which means this must be...
1: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Pillars of Franchising. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, we have Scott Greenberg with us from The Wealthy Franchisee. Super exciting day. And uh, Carmela Marsala, we don't know where you are. Uh, you must be having a good time somewhere. Uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you soon. Hey, Karen, how are you?
2: Hello. Doing great. Doing great. So it's You're doing great too, I was going to say, with your nice nice uh, California background and that's it that's that's great so
1: yes I am joining you all today from um, a little tea shop called Mountain Sage in Groveland we're about 30 minutes from the gate of Yosemite and it is a beautiful day so we are dressed appropriately for being up amongst the uh, vineyards right now awesome
2: so, so what I'd are we to, talking about? I would love to talk about something that's a lot. There's been a lot of talk over the past few months. It's coming to fruition. And that's going to be the end of the student loan pause. It's been a what three-year pause now. And yes, it's coming to an end. And, and the impact of that, you know, what's the impact yeah. on, like, I think, on the, on, the, on the industry.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, that's interesting because the hot topic that uh, my dad wanted to talk to me when I first got here about was, Um, A gal who had been in school, she got loans for her bachelor's, her master's, her PhD. She's now a principal of a high school. I believe it's a high school. And she has decided that she makes $100,000 a year. She owes over $200,000 in debt, and she's just not going to pay it.
2: Oh, my (laughs) gosh.
1: And and you wonder how many people
2: that's going to happen to. And then I think there's, and I was reading where I have the numbers here, where the average, the debt, the loan debt is about $37,000 per bar, which means that's about like a payment of $300 a month per person.
1: Yeah. Well, and interestingly, so, you know, um, my daughter happens to go to a school that um, makes me choke every time I think about the bills being due. My kids um, and my <laughs> yeah, right? you go, oh, oh my God, but there was a list that was just published um, and forgive me, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. I can't tell you what what re- reputable uh news company put it out um about the top twenty schools that are the biggest bang for your buck, and what they were talking about is though in some of these colleges their loan amounts may be larger, they're tracking the kids that come out of these schools. And within six years, most of them are able to pay back their debts. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So you've got a lot of Ivy League schools that are significantly, in most cases, more expensive to attend to. But because of the networks that they build while they're at those schools, they tend to get higher paying jobs when they come out. Right. And this, in turn, allows them to pay back their tuition. Um, Certainly for the normal person like myself who, you know, attended Michigan State and then Benedictine University, those are not big schools. I did go into debt and I did have to pay those loans back. However, um, I didn't rack up those kinds of debts. And, you know, I think the thing when we were reading through that article, the thing that really strikes me is that we're at a point where the debts are due. Gas prices are high, right? food prices are high, right? Getting and keeping employees is still difficult. Every service or meal that you order is higher. Right. So at what point, where's the breaking point? And, and who gets the right to say, we're done with this? Where, where are the breaks? No, t- totally, totally agree. And, and I think where, where you're going to see
2: it with consumers, you know, they're talking about where the, they can't just keep spending, right? right? So they're gonna have to stop somewhere. And they're saying some of the big things that, that they think will be kind of cut from people's personal budgets will mm-hmm. be things like alcohol. Yeah, I like to yeah. see that one, but they're saying alcohol, yeah, alcohol industry. Um, they're even talking about some of the e-commerce. I mean, think about yeah. all the Amazon, all the, you know, you think about all the people, the purchases there. Sure yeah it slow down there, and the third one that is the biggest impact is the restaurant industry
3: and the yeah. impact
2: on that and especially with um kind of all different areas, but more of like, what what will you call it? like the full service the full service yeah. places that people are gonna probably if they go they're gonna spend less money sure and, right or or they just might not go and go to some
1: type of fast food places. Yeah. Well, and here's a great example, right? And we're not selling anybody anything you don't already know, but I went in for breakfast the other day and my friend had a cup of coffee and I had, you know, breakfast and coffee and I got the bill and for, you know, two cups of coffee and one meal it was $32 and I went, what? And then I looked and each cup of coffee was 3.75. It's crazy. I'm like, this- this is like a regular cup of coffee. This isn't Starbucks, right? And so the question that I have when you get into and let's and let's just talk briefly about the restaurant space because it is a franchise operation in many cases. Um, my question is always: At what point do your price increases outpace the cost of doing business? So are you padding a three dollar and seventy five cent cup of coffee? So you make you know, instead of 10% gross margins, you're making 15 or 20, or do you need, do you truly need that 375 on what used to be, you know, a dollar cup of coffee because of your labor, your utilities, your supplies, right? Like, it's really hard to tell. And I think a lot of people, as they pull back from, you know, dining, it's like, okay, how much can we really take?
2: Agreed. Agree, and I think I think that's why the restaurant industry is going to get impacted. And then yeah. take, you know, then you take a look at it's kind of a whole cycle, right? Because then, okay, they're probably not going to have as many employees, so they're going to start yeah. reducing things. And yeah. you know, and they could talk about value meals and value everything, but at the mm-hmm. point, there's only so much you can you can even cut there. So it is going to be interesting to see and, and yeah. the, the impact of, of all of this.
1: Well, you know, being on a plane for four hours, um, I happen to be reading an an economist article like I never read that stuff really. It bores me to death. But I happen to be reading it because he said he is uh, one of the early ones that projected the recession of 08. And just like in 08, he he feels that we're at a point right now that, again, we talked about recession and we pulled back and we didn't. And now he's like, listen, I really think in the next six to eight months, we're going to see something. That's going to look very real, like a recession. What does that mean? Who's to say, right? It doesn't, you don't really know what industry is going to be most impacted. But I think, you know, certainly in my business, it's probably time for me to take a price increase, but I'm very sensitive to my clients. And so I know I'm running smaller margins right now. Because I'm afraid if I raise my prices too much, and this has always been an issue for me opening right in the recession back in 08, I'm afraid I'll lose them. And so do I want to keep them and make a little money or do I want to lose them and make no money? That's the kind of the issue that small business people have right now.
2: Totally. I mean, I feel the same way. And I think for the past year, there's been a threat of recession you know many people will say we had been in one, you know you hear all these different you know different people talking about either you know, we have been in one, we weren't in one, we aren't you know there's gonna be one i mean let's face it we we don't have control over that, but you're yeah. right i I feel many small businesses have have kind of put a put a cap on not not yeah. raising their prices because they're nervous about it.
1: Yeah. Well, all I can say on behalf of franchising is, you know, try to continue to remember that franchises are small businesses. They do support families within the community that they serve. And, you know, it, it, it may be a matter of you go to, you know, an Ace Hardware rather than going to a Home Depot or Lowe's because it has an immediate impact to the community versus to the stock market.
2: Absolutely. I don't know.
1: Everybody has to make those choices. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so. I, I, I am
2: one for I try it really try hard to, to purchase from small businesses because they really are the, and franchises, they're really the, the foundation to, to yeah. our economy in so many ways. And, and to, to,
1: you're right, to be very mindful of that. Right. So while we don't have the answers here at Pillars of Franchising, we do know that we need to keep close watch on this and really watch our restaurant businesses, service brands, really find out what is going to happen. And do we start to see um, shifts in spending within the um, small business and franchise community? So if you're a small business or a franchisee out there and you're starting to feel stuff, drop us a line. Let us know how it's affecting you and what your plans are to kind of where ride the wave, so to speak, as we get through yet another challenging economic time potentially ahead.
3: Hey, franchise owners. How is your local marketing? Do you feel like you could use some help keeping up with your social media posts and comments and reviews? Do you wonder if you could be doing more to attract local customers? Are you able to identify new movements to your local area? At Westvine, we help franchisees like you more local customers through digital marketing. With daily monitoring, creative content, and ad placement, and customer data intelligence, we'll get your business in front of the people who want your products or services. We also work with franchisors who need an agency to handle the digital marketing for all of their locations. If you're ready to reach more local customers, give us a call at 805 265 5440 or visit us at westvine.com. That's 805-265-5440 or westvine with a y.com.
1: And welcome back to Pillars of Franchising with us today. I have, of course, one of our mentors, Karen Kimsey-Sward and Mr. Scott Greenberg. Welcome I'm back, Scott.
0: Good to be here.
1: We are so excited for those people who haven't met you before um, or haven't read about you because you're all over social media. Um, Just a reminder to everybody that you were um, a franchisee yourself, right? With Edible Arrangements. Yep. Very cool. And uh, what are you up to nowadays?
0: So I still speak and write constantly. That is what I do. Um, Just finished a, a new book, which will be out in February. Uh, But yeah, but I'm out traveling uh, again, very gratefully. Um, 70, 80% of my audiences are franchises. Um, I'm off to the uh, IFA uh, advocacy summit next week, excited to speak there and participate in that. But yeah, I'm busy bouncing around presenting and writing articles and getting ready to promote the new book. And uh, again, gratefully busy.
1: Well, I really enjoyed The Wealthy Franchisee book, which really kind of talked about um, not only your journey in starting your business and how you kind of transformed, I'll call it, um, the way in which you treated employees, the way you brand. Which really kind of talked about um, not only your journey in starting your business and how you kind of you transformed, I'll call it, um, the way in which... You
3: treated employees, we really to join them. What really talked about um not only your money and putting your business how you to hear
1: that more on <laughs> the um, Sorry, I have to pause until we get that technical issue taken care of there. All right. Sounds like it went away. Go ahead, Karen.
2: <laughs> so um well, you know, I I know I I have not read your book, The Wealthy Franchisee, and I'm I'm going to. I have to tell you because just even talking with you before, I like to know what's prompted you to to be on this this whole. Um, you know, you here you were you were running a franchise, uh, catching me up a little bit and catch our audience up who haven't really read your book. What prompted you to really get into this and start really talking about this and writing the book?
0: I've done a lot of things in my life backwards, and one of which is. <laughs> The the profession that I've got it into. Usually you accomplish something, and then if you're fortunate, you write a book about it and you speak on it. For the 14 years prior to getting into franchising, I was already working as a professional motivational speaker. Um, I had an overcoming adversity story from my 20s, and that led to what I thought would be a one-off speech. Led to a whole career of me traveling, getting paid to give presentations, and what started off as overcoming adversity became then about peak performance and leadership and management. It expanded, but it bothered me that so many of my audience members had more actual, real-world business experience and leadership experience. So my wife and I were starting a family, and I thought I, I, I want to. Tr- I don't want to stop speaking, but I want to travel a little bit less. So I need another stream of income, and I ended up with Edible Arrangements. And so for ten years, as a multi-unit franchisee, but still doing the speaking. Well, I, we, we we learned a few things running up business. We got better and better and made some money, won some awards. So I started getting invitations from other franchise uh, systems to speak to their owners about what they could do to be successful. So part of my process when meeting with these, uh, when you know getting ready for a speech is to interview as many audience members as possible. So over the years, I have surveyed and talked with a lot of franchise business owners, including the best from all these different brands. And so- I decide as long as I'm speaking about it, I should also then write a book about these top people who I call wealthy franchisees what makes them different from everyone else. So really, it was a way of codifying everything that I was already saying in my speeches, but at a much deeper level. And um, yeah, so it came out a few years ago and it's been, it's opened a lot of doors for me and hopefully it's helped a lot of people.
2: Isn't it amazing how by you having that experience, the hands-on experience, I kind of felt that way running a franchise because I was in on the franchisor side. And then went to the franchisee side i'm like oh I knew what i know now i would have been a better franchisor so it's right. kind of funny how the way the way we all the way we all do learn absolutely in the stories yeah and that's just life right yes yes it is life isn't it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah most books are written you know by people who it's like here's what i wish i knew back you know when i first started or whatever this path was on so some things i got right a lot of things i got wrong uh, but the book isn't just about me. It's mostly about these other people and, you know, what they've learned and what what they're getting right and why they are so much more successful than everybody else in the same circumstances sticking to the same system.
1: That's a really good point. So can you tell us maybe three or five things that stand out in your mind that really drives a difference between a, a, an adequate performer and a top performer in franchise businesses?
0: I think we should make Karen read the book and have her come back next time and tell you. <laughs> oh, a great. Right, you're gonna, you're gonna give
1: me to no it. you're gonna
2: give me the cliff notes and then I'm right. gonna read it and call you.
0: Okay. It's funny, that's what people don't People don't want to read a book like just tell me what's the one thing? <laughs> yeah. That's all we're gonna kick Yeah, because it's only one thing. Right? <laughs> Hey, what's the cure to cancer? Which is one thing. Right, uh, right. I'll share with you. I'll share with you a few <laughs> main ideas. So I'm all about the human side of business, and maybe it's because I start off as a motivational speaker. But I believe that each one of us are we we impact our business more than anything else. We're either an asset to a business, our business, or we're, we're a liability. So the first thing that I find that these wealthy franchisees do is they're willing to look in the mirror, to constantly take a self inventory and consider how are they impacting their own business. So that means that they really work with a clear head. So they're not c- coming from emotion, from their gut, which I hear all the time. Oh, my gut instincts, please. No, they're, <laughs> they're working with data. They clear their head of emotion <laughs> and psychology and they make the most clear decisions possible. They lean into change. Um, so that's really big. Second thing that they, they do is they stick to the system. We hear that all the time, assuming that they're aligned with a great franchisor. And in spite of what franchisees think, not all, but most franchisors really do have their head in the right place and really do have a great system. They stick to that system. They, they outsource the innovation, the creativity to the franchisor. They just want to execute at a higher level. None of the franchises okay. that I interviewed in my book who are great got there because they deviated from the system. So they keep a clear head. They stick to the proven system. And this is a fairly broad category, but they use their business to improve the lives of everyone it touches, Love it. especially their employees. And especially their customers. So for their employees, they're not just seeing them as you know as as widgets or as cogs in a, in a machine. You know they're they see them as people who they're responsible for to develop them and grow them, to engage yeah. them and inspire them. They don't just train them in work; they train them in teamwork. So again, it's that human side. That doesn't mean that they're constantly being nice to them and giving them stuff. It definitely doesn't mean they're just throwing money at them. But it means they're investing in their performance, including tough love, but making that investment. And then with customers, they understand they're not just in the transaction business. They're building connections. And no matter what the products or services are, they deliver them in a way that elevates their emotions. So they exist to make others feel good in the delivery of their products and services. So everything is very human. Yes, they do a lot of marketing. Hopefully, they have a decent location. They get out in their community. I mean, all this stuff, but those things aren't the prerequisite to success. That's just That lets you play the game. To win the game, you have to add that human element.
2: That's so You still have to read the book, there, Karen. Yeah, No, I know that. And what I love, and you know, those of you who know me, I am um, all about relationship, the people side. And Scott, if you think about it, all the different things you talked about, it's about the relationship, right? With the franchisor. Mm-hmm. It is following the system. You know, it's about, about making sure that you're connecting there. It's with employees. It's with yourself. Yeah. So I love it. There's the key, it's, there's, there's just some key themes that go together.
0: Well, and the last thing you said, I think is the hardest for a lot of struggling franchisees to accept is that relationship with oneself, mm-hmm. acknowledging one's own emotions and vulnerability and how they might be getting their way, acknowledging that they have biases, right? Um, you know, Your first instinct when it isn't going well is to blame the franchisor or blame the economy or blame the, the governor's mansion <laughs> or the white. I mean, these struggling yeah. franchisees, they point in 359 directions. But never yep. in that 360th, right? Yeah. And so that's really difficult. So, you know, that's you know, so much of my work is about helping people understand that there's so much more success to be had, there's so much more money on the table. But the first yeah. place to look is in the mirror. Because if you're so, go ahead.
1: No, 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 it's fine. I go ahead and finish that, please. I
0: was gonna say, so I mean, if you really want to bring out the best in others, which is what business is, it starts with you being the best version of yourself. Not you thinking that you're at your best, but at your true best. And that requires a lot of self-reflection and some humility.
1: I think that's such a great point. So so this is kind of the journey and, and the summation of getting through being the wealthy, very successful franchisee. But today, now as we've come through COVID and we have different challenges, are you seeing the same like the talks that you're giving to leadership and to franchisees, are they kind of of the same vein or do you have some new stuff that people have asked for help and guidance on?
0: Um, well, the same issues that were there before continue because that's just mm-hmm. business. That's just franchising, right? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Everyone's always looking for more business. Everyone's always looking to reduce their headaches, right? Yep. How can I get my employees to you know fill in the blank? But right. here's what I'm seeing more of. Um, you were talking about it earlier, which is cost of goods, right? Uh, I yep. hear that. Uh, it's always been an issue, but it's really an issue now for all these complicated economic reasons. Mm-hmm. In with that then is, you know, finding employees. And the reason right. why, you know, as if if demand goes up or demand remains the same, but supply goes down, well, then, you know, prices go up. Well, supply hasn't been there because- there haven't been the people to manufacture. There haven't been the people to deliver. You know, Suppliers have struggled with that. All things related mm-hmm. to the pandemic. And so it leads to higher prices. But here's what was interesting. Because I, I was listening to, you know, Kristen, you and Karen, what you were talking about before about, you know, the raising of prices. At some mm-hmm. point, all these things balance out and everyone's trying to predict when. I interviewed a franchisee today. I'm speaking to a coffee brand in a couple weeks. So this is the week where I'm interviewing all these franchisees for that one. Everyone has been complaining about you know th- their costs going up. But this yeah. one franchisee who's a big time multi-unit, been in the business for years and she's killing it, doing well. She said, actually, it's not a problem for her because the franchisor offered different tiers of pricing. She immediately went for the highest one. Well, that doesn't just take a business decision. That takes courage. Where everyone else mm-hmm. is afraid they're going to scare customers away. She went for it. She said, not one person has complained. So she's able to protect. Yeah, so part that. of of navigating through, and it's not—I I understand it's much more complicated than that, but I do think that sure. part of navigating the new normal, the new economy, is to have the courage to say, you know what, I don't want to gouge people, I don't want to overprice, but I'm going to have the courage to price based off of where things are at today. Um, anyway, yeah. so yeah, so so that that's uh, you know those are some of those challenges, and, and of course with employees, it seems like it's it's um, a little bit better than say nine mm-hmm. months ago but people are still looking for employees and trying to figure out how to keep them.
2: What's, yeah. the, what's your advice like- for
1: this? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm sorry, Karen. It's much easier when we're in person, right? We can eye each other. I know who's going <laughs> first. <laughs> um, but when you when you talk about that, Scott, it's very interesting because when you're buying a product to sell, I mean, the goal should always be that you're the overall best value, right? Not the cheapest. And so I have to imagine this gal was not only thinking about, you know, delivering the best product in the best way, but being the overall best value and and some of the, the data behind it is knowing who your competition is, right? So if, if you're looking you're gonna spend the most to get what it is that you need for your business, but you can still come in below say Starbucks or you know some of the other bigger brand coffee shops, why not? I mean, I think that's a great point and decision that she made not to go to the cheapest, easiest way, because then you'll kind of dilute the quality of your brand by diluting the product, the product quality. Right. I mean, that's how I look at that.
0: Well, and not just with selling coffee. How about trying to find employees? The way most people try to address that is they'll just offer more money. Right. So to get more employees, offer more money to uh, get more customers, charge less money. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, I will pay more for something if I have a better experience. I'll yeah. stay in a nicer hotel, I'll buy nicer clothing, I'll drive a nicer car, I'll pay more for a cup of coffee. If I'm getting value, I don't need to save right. money, I just want to feel like I'm getting a lot of value for the money that I'm paying. And luxury brands in plenty of places that aren't the, the cheapest are doing really well. Well, mm-hmm. I also believe the same is true for employees. People will pay more for a great customer experience. Employees will accept less for a better work experience. Not that we should be the lowest, we need to kind of compete. But if you provide a great experience beyond just giving them stuff, but treating them well and creating a culture, again, those people things, the data shows that people will stay longer because people aren't just quitting because they're not getting paid enough money. It's because they hate their boss. All things being equal, they'll go where there's more money. So don't be equal. Be a better employer with a better culture. You know, focus on the offer. If they want flexibility, find a way to make that happen. So I don't think you have to compete just based off of charging the the cheapest. I say be the best.
2: I t- totally agree. It's interesting because even the one when we were talking about you know earlier, and we were talking a lot about you know pricing and there's all these commercials about value, you, you know. But then it's 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 usually value is tied to like the pricing, right? It's not tied to the experience. And you're and you're right. More more people are looking for the experience. And when you think about like the whole employee experience, I mean research is showing. It is showing that people, if they're treated well, they're going to stay. They're not going to just—they're not just going to run off. And then that then gets the best employee or the best customer experience. So it really does go mm-hmm. hand in hand. And I think so many companies and franchisees they have a hard time with that. Sometimes they'll focus on one or the other. And it really does go hand in hand.
0: Yeah. Look, I don't know about you. I—I I, you know I'm in business to make money. I mean, I want to do a lot of other things, but making money is is important. And so when my margins start to go down. Um, I have to think long and hard about how I want to handle that. And the idea of, you know, discounting and that kind of thing, It just, uh, you know, it, it, I worry about the, the long-term. I'd rather just be the best, offer the most value, get people psyched, and yep. people pay more for it.
1: Yeah. So, Scott, you're going to be attending the Advocacy Summit and meeting with a bunch of franchisees. Can you tell me what your objective is when you go and meet with them and how you intend on helping um, franchisees move through some of this governmental, I'm going to call it BS that we're um, seeing right now?
0: Sure. Uh, I'm super excited for this event and the session I'm doing, it's it's, I have all the franchisees. I'll be doing a session for franchisees though. I was told there should be some franchisors there as well. And some of the suppliers who are there, but I'm doing a two hour session called telling your franchise story. And this is different than what I'm usually brought in to speak on. So I'm really excited to explore this with franchisees. To be very interactive and it's basically how to communicate your business in a way that makes people feel something and gives you influence. Because all of us in business are constantly trying to impact how others think and how others behave. Whether we're trying to bring in more customers, bring in more job candidates, inspire our employees, um, or advocate for our industry with the local media or with the national um, you know government, we need to be able to tell a good story right? We need to make people care. We need to be able to have people see us, uh, in, in three dimensions to understand that Mm -hmm. that's not just, you know, Burger King, this big corporate entity, but that's, that's Mark and Diane's Burger King, Mark and Diane who are part of us. And we need to be able to tell the true story of franchising because most people, all they know, they think McDonald's and even there, the story isn't correct. They think this big, massive entity, as yeah. opposed to one that's you know collects royalties from all these individual smaller entities. And some of them are single unit mom and pops who happen to own uh you know this burger place and they're they're paying a royalty on it. That story yeah. isn't isn't well told. Right. So my whole session um is all about how to tell a story in a way that get people to care, that get people to listen and get people to think and behave differently. That's what the session's about.
1: So I think that's really interesting. And can you for people who aren't familiar with what's going on with this summit, Um, these stories will then be told to the lawmakers. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the objective is for the summit itself?
0: Sure. There's a a few different things. So one of which is the whole joint employer issue is back on the table, uh, which means that there's a movement to hold franchisors liable and as accountable for what happens at the individual owner level um, as if it was happening nationally. So when that one, um, you know, Dunkin' Donuts franchise in you know, rural Florida somewhere, when they don't pay their people overtime, um, a joint employer would enable someone to sue the, you know, the larger company as opposed to just the franchisee who made that mistake and hold the larger company responsible and liable for everything happening at the franchisee level under the belief that, well, if the larger entity is responsible, then there's going to be more oversight. Well, there may or may not be. Certainly, they're going to get their hands all over franchisees. It's certainly it's great for. There's a lot of reasons why it's, you know, why it is uh, an issue. And I sure. think that it's a result of the public and the government not understanding the model that these are just individual owners who are paying a a, a royalty in exchange for some help and the right to use. Certain proprietary things, but they don't own right. it. Right, it's not their fault for what happens. So that's the one thing is to kind of provide clarity so that legislation um, isn't implemented that hurts the franchise model by looking at the franchisor as a, as an owner of the business. The other thing right. is that, and this one I don't quite understand as well, but the I believe it's the Federal Trade Commission every now and then, every 10 years or something, they do a big review of the franchise industry and of the model, that kind of thing. And my Mm -hmm. understanding is there are certain people who are in charge who seem to have the franchise industry in their crosshairs um, (laughs) and want to legislate in such a way that um, isn't good for the industry for, for a lot of the same reasons. And so the idea is to have the government to understand what the industry is, what it's about, and what's the most appropriate kind of legislation to preserve something that in spite of the occasional sensational stories, the system really works, yes. Right, and so let's not let's not break it.
2: I love it. So then, I hope really, I articulated
0: that. No, that right. Word.
2: But oh, I, yeah. what you've done is you you've added the kind of like the human element, and brought it down to so they can understand it more because they're seeing it based on kind of probably their point of view and more, mm-hmm. more of a broad a broad brush a broad level and don't really quite understand franchising.
0: Well, it's interesting. I remember when um, when Russia invaded Ukraine there are calls for divesting from Russia. Well, a lot of quick service restaurants remained open. So people yeah. says Boy- boycott yeah. Burger King. Don't yeah. go to that local Burger King owned by mom and pop on your corner because they won't pull out of Russia. Well, the larger company is, uh, is it restaurants, Inter- brands international, I think. Um, anyway, uh-huh. the, the entity that owns Burger King, they don't own or control the locations in Russia. That's a separate licensing right. thing. They have no control whatsoever. But people are calling for a boycott of the local Burger King. And it's just, it's, you know, I wrote an article about this for Entrepreneur. Um, it was just very misguided. And that's part yeah, of Yeah, that's part. a
2: great point. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: Well, it's it's very interesting. So I'm really thankful as a franchisee um, that, that you and so many other people are going down there and are going wow. to, first of all, You know, a lot of us as small business people don't know how to tell our story. And I think even if you have a story to tell, you have to know the audience that you're delivering it to and what you want the audience to take away so that they can make decisions with data and information, not just, as we talked about before, kind of their opinions or their feelings, so to speak. Um, So with all this going on, I'd love to know when you had the time and how you decided to, and what is in this new book that you have coming out? It's
0: funny, I signed my my book contract um, with Entrepreneur Press in January of 2020. And I had this really busy calendar of speaking engagements, literally worldwide. And I thought, where am I going to find time in 2020 to write a book? And the answer yeah. to that question came in March. We
2: know that answer. We yes. know that yeah. answer. Yeah, I
0: have. To, I have to be very careful when I blow out birthday candles because what I wish for tends to happen. My calendar just got cleared, so I had huh. I had time to write a book. Um, this last year has been my busiest year ever. Uh, and I knew that it was going to be unless another pandemic came. And so I was very uh, concerned about that. But between airplanes and early mornings, I just it's funny when you've been paid in advance and you're contractually obligated to something, <laughs> you, you find a way.
2: You're motivated. Right. <laughs>
0: you know, there's something to be said for like discipline. There's another thing for legal obligation. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's what motivated me. The, uh, the fear of not meeting my deadlines. <laughs> so, yeah, I found a way and was able to uh, get another book done.
1: So is this book on franchising or what? Tell us about this new book. What what's in it?
0: It's not about franchising, though. It's absolutely relevant for the franchise industry. Um, okay. So the book is called Stop the Shift Show. Turn your struggling hourly workers into a top performing team.
1: Love it. Now, I have a shirt that says ringmaster of the shit show, but that's not what you said. You that is said not sh-
0: that is not what I said. No, but maybe you, I'll come you up with,
1: inserted wait. the F. So the that's, that's right. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's
0: right. Um, I have to I, know what time did you
1: to do this? discuss this a
0: lot in interviews yeah. when the time comes. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear like hosts, like maybe on national radio and TV, if I'm lucky enough to get those gigs, to hear the host accidentally get bleeped out because they said shit show. <laughs> um, yeah. But obviously that's what I'm referring to before I put in the dad joke pun there. So yeah. what I discovered from being a business owner for 10 years, but also from writing the book and hearing people's responses and their questions and what I've been asked to speak on, people have and continue to struggle, not just with managing employees, but specifically hourly workers. If you look at the majority of materials that are out there on management and leadership, they're broad. They're they mostly for people who are earning a salary, right? Yeah. Which is really important, but 56% of employees in America are hourly, where they're not yeah. necessarily on a path to a career where the relationship with the boss, with the company is more transactional than it is Mm -hmm. relational, where maybe the work is more repetitive, monotonous, that it's lower skilled. Um, Maybe they're working another job, or maybe they're going to school. Maybe they're below 25 and their brains are still developing, that they're not yet in a place where they're... There's so many things that are different. And so to sit down with a bunch of 19-year-olds who are in that place, who aren't trying to, you know, support a family. They're saving money for prom or who knows what. And talking about (laughs) your vision and your purpose. No, what? Oh yeah, here's our our value statement. We stand for integrity. Integral what? Yeah, yeah. And not that all our, in the average age of hourly workers is 25. It's not 19. But the fact is it's a completely different demographic that needs to be looked at and treated and managed differently than you would treat those who, are given the respect and the benefits and the perks that come with more white collar work. So So I wanted to take a deep dive into understanding what does it take to manage that worker?
2: Love it. So Mm -hmm. that's
0: what the book is about. And so there's some personal stories, but most of it's based on research and me, just like I do with the wealthy franchisee meeting all these um, bosses, owners, high level managers of hourly work environments um, from people from the U S Canada, the UK who are killing it, who, yeah, there's always gonna be a certain amount of, of problems when it comes to managing workers. Otherwise we don't need managers. But these people love their employees. They have great retention. They have a great, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, what, what's the, what's the uh, I keep, uh, the customer service thing where people call us and they say, would you recommend this to a friend? Oh,
1: mm-hmm. the NPS, score. that NPS you're scores that we're talking about. So they, they have, have, have really good stickers.
0: employee NPS scores. Yep. They just don't complain. Like they have mastered the art of managing hourly workers. So what is that all of these people have in common, just like with the wealthy franchisee? Yes. So the whole book is just about that. And um, I'm really proud of it. Got some great interviews, learned some things, shared some things. And uh, I really hope it helps people. And obviously I hope it helps me, but I I think it's it's well needed. It's a book that's been needed for, you know. Oh,
2: yes. Centuries. Time exactly, exactly because you're you're exactly right. Where it's general, and a lot of these generalities do not apply to this. You know these mm-hmm. age groups and and the, and the hourly worker. And what I love about this, especially right now, look at the the, the 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 people that are out there. um People are struggling. I mean, baby boomers are struggling to get people, especially in this age group, right? And there's such a mm-hmm. generational gap and difference now more than ever. So I yep. love it that you're going to be able to really address this and give tips.
0: Well, you're right. And here's the thing. You mentioned generations. So I'm of the best generation that's ever existed, Generation X. Best music, best hair, best of generation course. ever. Others may disagree. When I look at today's younger workforce um, through my Generation X lenses, um, which are Ray-Bans, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for being So uncool. Our, our, our way there. Um, I, 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 it it deeply disturbs me. The idea of ghosting, not showing up for an interview, telling your boss when you're going to work. Like there's so many, you know, you know, mental health breaks. That stuff as a generation X, like I, I cringe, it, it infuriates me. And then when I'm done being angry, I say, it's time to take off the glasses now and stop judging them. And and for better or for worse, just understand them and adjust the way I manage so i can recruit them so i can retain them right and so so much of it cuz here's the thing people have always complained about kids these days and i yeah. watched quotes, i've quotes dating back to aristotle in yes. my book in fact one of the jokes i make in the book is that aristotle's parents probably complained about him like what's wrong with this kid all he ever does is sit around and think like people have always complained about the the newest generation right yep. And they and it's all complain about my son who's in college to my mom about all these things that he does with no common sense instead of empathizing with me she says oh yeah and then she starts telling me telling stories of me when I was in college <laughs> things that I have forgotten was, oh, I guess that wasn't too cool so again as a generation Xer I do think there are things about kids these days that are different mm-hmm. that really bother me but it's the same dynamic so regardless of your generation, like I wrote the book thinking, what if 100 years from now, someone's great grandkid finds the book and picks it up? I want the book to be able to help that person. So what are the universals? Yeah. And so Love it's it. not about how to manage generation Z. It's about how to understand your employees, understand whatever generation they are, to understand what makes them tick, then how to adapt to, it, to inspire them. But also, what are the timeless and universal things that inspire all of us. And there well, are a number Karen, of those things as well.
1: I know. Yeah, Karen, you you talk about meeting them where they're at. I was right? just going to say exactly. that. Yes,
2: Kristen, I was just going to say that. I love, Scott, I'm just, I get excited because you're right. It is meeting people where they are. It's not where you are. It's where they are. And to give some yeah. of these these tips and everything, again, now I've got two books I'm going to have to read of yours. Well,
0: Karen, <laughs> I, I don't care if you read them. I just want you to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> Once you got them I don't care
2: what you do with them. So But you can see I have a lot of those, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm going to read them. I'll look, I think a lot of tips. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's great the work that you're doing not only for the industry but also for franchising in general, Scott. I mean, and mm-hmm. in, in this you know, I am also of the greatest generation right now with you and you know at, and and I have a college kid and I have two in high school and you know like yesterday I texted my kid something and I get yo bruh I'm like what's a bra? like b-r-u-h what what y- y- you know like I can't understand where they're coming from <laughs> yeah I'm like seriously and I don't get I love you too I get l-y what is it I-L-Y-T. I'm like, what is, like, it's a whole nother language that they're speaking. But I, I guess we all just have to learn today's acronyms in order to accurately communicate with our kids in the new workforce, right? I mean, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, it's almost like, you know, the, the language has changed, but the ideas are the same, right? Yeah. You know, like, you know, the other day, my daughter, you know, she says, you know, yo, and, you know, same <laughs> kind of thing. Right. And there's, a, there's an informality that isn't what I grew up with.
1: Right. right? But we had totally gnarly and we had like gag me with a spoon and right. right? Like, yeah, but we said it to each other, thing.
0: not to our parents. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Or in the workplace. <laughs> or or, or <laughs> <my> mom <laughs> might say, actually, I did speak to her that way. You know, <laughs> Hey, Scott, you got an angel. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm so stoked. Like I might've like talked to her that way. But here's the thing. It's like. For what's formality? For it's a construct, yeah. right? Is it is yeah. it really necessarily better? There's all kinds of formalities that we had during earlier ages, and they were tell you how can society not function this way? Well, look yeah. look at the rest of society at that time. Was it really <laughs> such a great time? Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a natural order that's there, meaning women knew their place right? Everyone, (laughs) is that such a better time? Right? There's a lot of constructs that I think we need to question, including ourselves. And so just like with the wealthy franchisee, where I say, you start by looking in the mirror. It's kind of the same thing with managing these employees. It's like, here's the thing. I can't tell you how many times someone has said, Scott, how can I get my employees to fill in the blank? What a manager or franchise owners never said to me is, Scott, how can I become more influential? How can I be better at what I do as Mm -hmm. a leader? No mm-hmm. one ever asked that question, right. right? But how many people do you know that are, that are forget being even perfect, that are even excellent yeah. at yeah. what they do, right? It always starts with us. So um, it's sort of about no longer blaming and just understanding ourselves. How can we be more flexible? How can we adapt? Understanding where they are, um, meeting them where they're at, not to coddle them, not mm-hmm. to enable them, but so we can manage them, right? Right. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, I just got a, a little joking emoji from women belonging in, in their place. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs>
0: well, right, like but th- those kinds of beliefs went along with all the civilized formality. They that did. Was, yeah. the
1: yes, absolutely. Hey, today the kids don't know. They don't need to know how to write. They don't need to know how to spell because everything they're doing is on the computer and it's self-correcting itself. So who knows where we wind up but I think the important message is that everybody understands that there are going to continue to be new generations behind us and you can't fight it. You you have to embrace it and you have to manage change and figure out how you're going to make them be the best humans they can be. And the one thing I love about having, you know, teenage kids is that they're really good at social media. And I'm not.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A discussion for another time. Well, yes. Scott, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to see how it goes at the Advocacy Summit and check out your new book when it comes out. What is the release date?
0: February 13th.
1: Awesome. So we'll have you on again as we push out the book. And uh, hopefully everybody listening will be sure to mark your calendars and get ready for yet another book. And it's called?
0: It's called Stop the Shift Show. Turn your struggling Alley workers into a top Performing Team."
1: Yes. Insert the letter F. 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 Yes. And hopefully by February
0: 13th, I'll have gotten the Pillars of Franchising theme song out of my head. But usually it sticks around after I hear it. So thank it you again for that earworm and for scarring me once again with that song. It
1: does. You know, that's what we're here for. Thank you so much. We can't wait to see you again soon. Thank thanks you, so Scott. And thanks for I all your, your
3: work.
0: 50 graduates resulting in seven new franchisees owning eight franchise brands, more than a dozen skilled graduates who are employees of franchise companies, all of them having earned a concentration in franchising exclusively granted by the Titus Center at Palm Beach Atlantic University, plus more than 80 franchise professionals on our advisory board. The Titus Center for Franchising is on fire in West Palm Beach, Florida. What do you need to join us? My students want to hear from you. They may even want to buy your franchise or work for your company. TitusCenter.com.
1: And I'd like to thank and all thank of you, you for, all for joining, for joining us, today. us today for another episode of Pillars of Franchising. I'd like to give a huge shout out to Jerry Akers, Andrea Mundy, Ray Piller, and Karen Kimsey-Sward, as well as Laura Liss for their continued support and insight on all things franchising. And last but not least, a shout of thanks to Fred McMurray, our producer. I am Kristen Schalmetzi, your fifth franchising mentor. And together, we are your resource for franchising success. This has been another episode of Pillars of Franchising. Join us again next week at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, wherever you get your podcast. And remember, the dream starts here. Have a great week.